Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to More Than Amuse podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than a Muse. I'm Stani. I'm Sadie, and I am also very excited for this topic today because I think this is the first full-on topic that we are doing because a listener suggested it yes. to us. And I totally want to shout her out. I hope I'm saying your name right. It's Rhiannon Ling. She's been following us for a while, and she reached out and talked about how we could include more theatrical women because, you know, we did theater growing up, but neither of us studied theater Mm -hmm. in higher education. So even though we know a little bit about it, it's kind of one of our blinder areas. And she reached out and mentioned that we should dive in to the Provincetown players and even sent over some sources. So we didn't have time to read both of these books, but I wanted to mention some of her favorite resources to learn more about these women are the Women Writers of the Provincetown Players by Judith E. Barlow. And I think that's a collection of the plays by the different women that we'll cover. That's amazing. And then the other one is Women of Provincetown from 1915 to 1922 by Cheryl Black. There's also like a website we grabbed a bunch of information from on the Provincetown Playhouse and the New England Historical Society. And I think some of the women we've covered all wrote memoirs. Some of them weren't finished. Some Mm -hmm. of them were. So there's a lot of resources if you want to dive more into this. And obviously today's episode will be more of like an overview yes (laughs) since we can't do everything but highly recommend if you're interested in like theater history this is definitely something to look into absolutely and also if you as a listener if you ever hear about someone or a topic and you think wow I want to know more but I don't feel like doing the deep dive cool that's what we're here for message us we'll do the deep dive for you or if you just think that there's something that is unsung underappreciated that's what we're here for please let us know because I had never heard of the Provincetown players at all Mm -hmm. and now yeah I I just love that this is added another filing cabinet in my brain there's a new folder for the Provincetown players and I'm happy it's here same yeah and some of these women are seriously it's some of the most fascinating stories yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have like ever read literally we could do an episode on every single woman that we cover and Mm -hmm. I know like this podcast will go on forever so eventually (laughs) eventually we probably will do an episode (laughs) on all of these women because we're here to stay but in the meantime it was just really cool to look at this little time period in history where like the beginning of like community theater pretty much mm-hmm. yeah and how important that was for women and how like prominent they were in that scene it's it's just a really really cool little niche area of history that I don't think you'd hear about very much on your own absolutely I wanted to mention a while ago I think when we covered Afra Ben do you yeah. remember you did an episode on Afra Ben who is a early woman playwright like clear back times of Shakespeare pretty much right mm-hmm. yeah I found an article later by Amy Drake on medium.com called where are the women playwrights and she kind of gives an overview of the history of like women in the playwright role and kind of how that has happened. And I just wanted to like briefly touch on some points of that. She talks about how like the first known play by a woman was The Tragedy of Miriam, which is a closet drama written by Elizabeth Carey. But it's also believed that the tragedy of Euripides was translated out of Greek into Latin from 1553 was by an earlier woman. Oh, cool. And it's often dismissed as what they call a schoolgirl exercise. So I guess they're Mm. like, write a play in your English class. And that's what came out of it. And so people didn't pay any attention to it. And then for a short period in time, theaters were closed by order of parliament. And so women were making what they called closet dramas, where they would write plays and 
perform them in their rooms. Kind of like Little Women with like yeah. Joe March and her sisters like performing little plays. And then the monarchy came back in the 1600s. Theaters reopened and women were allowed to perform on stage and female playwrights re-entered the field. But then women started disappearing from the playwright stage from the beginning of the 18th century and on. A lot of it's believed to be that just theater was supposed to be a place to instill virtue into your audience and plays by women were considered immoral because of the topics that they covered. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they would just like have more gritty, romantic, or like, I think it's more truthful parts of life. And she goes on to talk a lot about how like women have been writing about violence against women from the beginning of time, whereas a lot of plays by men tend to focus more on like the romantic happy ending stereotypical mm. play that's even more popular today. Also like sexual freedom of women or like women having love affairs with multiple men or even with other women were often in plays by women, whereas plays by men tend to follow more of the conventional part of society. Oh, yeah. So she goes on to talk about a lot of like early English playwrights and a few right after that. But even in this article, she didn't mention the Provincetown players. So I thought it was really cool that like – there's this little area of history, like I said, that like even wasn't really found in this overview of women playwrights when I think it's such an important part. So I'll come back to it in the end because she compares it to modern history and like what's happening now in the theater. But that's kind of the beginning of like women in theater and why it wasn't so popular for women to be playwrights. That's amazing. So then to now transition to the Provincetown Players and an overview on that. The Provincetown Players, it wasn't necessarily an exclusively woman group, but they were a collective of artists, writers, intellectuals, and amateur theater enthusiasts. And it was actually created by a husband and wife, George Cram Jig Cook and Susan Glassbell, who are originally from Iowa. The Provincetown Players actually only produced two seasons in Provincetown, Massachusetts, but then actually ended up doing six seasons in New York City between 1916 and 1922. What I think is really cool is apparently the company's founding has been called the most important innovative moment in American theater. And its productions helped launch the careers of Eugene O'Neill and Susan Glassbell, who was a founder of this group and ushered American theater into a modern era. And then, of course, in addition to developing an American tradition of non-commercial theater, Provincetown has another largely unacknowledged claim to fame. It was one of the very first theater companies in America in which women achieved prominence in every area of operation at a time which women playwrights were rare. Women directors were even rarer and the scenic designers were unheard of. But Provincetown's female members excelled in all of these roles. And what I love about that in a way is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and even in the creation of this podcast is like, oh no, we're creating a podcast where all we're doing is highlighting women. Should we be doing both so that it's not, you know, separating it more and more? And <laughs> yeah. it's just cool that in this case, it, they didn't have to, right? That there was a group mm -hmm. that was formed and women were invited and they did excel in it. They didn't necessarily even have to make it woman exclusive. They just found this place and they were given this space to excel. And so when it happens, I love it. I know. I love that too. I think it's something that's really cool about like every counterculture movement mm -hmm. that happens, like impressionism and everything else. You know, like we've talked about this so many times that when a new medium opens up, when there's something new, like women are able to enter because the status quo isn't there holding them back. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really amazing about this, especially. Yeah, I agree. So a little bit more information about the women in the Provincetown Players. So like I said, they were a really prominent part. I mean, Susan Glassbell was one of the people who started it. So Susan Glassbell and Jig Cook were partners in organizing the players, but Neith Boyce and Glassbell, who co-wrote a play with her husband Cook, they actually wrote the first two plays that were performed by the players. Mary Heat and Vorse donated the use of the fish house on Lewis Wharf as the players' first home for two summers in Provincetown, We'll go into the founding and creation. That will make a little bit more sense in a second. But like I mentioned, this really gave voice to women artists. Of the 47 playwrights whose work was produced by the Provincetown Players, 17 were women, which is mm. like not the majority, but you know, for the time, that's great. That's more than practically 
anyone else could ever claim. Yeah. So I think any other group at that time could claim. So And then prominent among these players were Susan Glassbell, who actually later won a Pulitzer Prize for drama in 1931 for her play Allison's House, Neath Boyce, Joanna Barnes, Louise Bryant, Rita Wellman, Mary Carolyn Davies, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, which later on in the episode will give a little brief overview of some of these women. And in addition to challenging the artistic status quo of Broadway, the Provincetown players gave opportunities to women and challenged the sexual segregation of commercial theater. What is really, really cool and kind of, I think, part of the reason why the Provincetown players were able to become such a thing is because it literally was like a community theater project. They all were living in this area of Greenwich Village, New York in July 1915. And it was this like outpost for numerous artists and writers. So all of these people were like artists and writers that lived in the Bohemian area of Greenwich Village, New York. Mm -hmm. But then they often would go out to Provincetown, Massachusetts during the summer Mm -hmm. just to escape the city. You know, they were like artists and writers. They were Bohemians, you know. But something that's really cool about that is Greenwich Village is like a historically really, really important American landmark of bohemian culture and like counterculture basically since the beginning i went and read into the history of it and there's a lot of stuff like it started out as the area where they had the jail and then they built like a bunch of other areas yeah and then it eventually just became this like focus of like progressive attitudes and like artistic residence Mm -hmm. and alternative culture and that's where a lot of like new movements, ideas, political, artistic, and cultural things happened. So it was the beginning of like the avant-garde scene, the alternative culture during the 19th century. Art galleries are there. Experimental theater continues to thrive there. Small presses for like independent books or newspapers or other print projects mm. are very prominent there as well. It's also really important to note that this was the site of the Stonewall riots. Oh, um, and so the gay rights movement is huge there. It's actually considered a national historic landmark for being where the gay rights movement originated, which I think is very on par with all of the early history of Greenwich Village, especially with these early residents that we'll talk about. Like, It's just a very important part of like bohemian and like counterculture. So on July 22nd, 1915, a group of friends who were really upset with the commercialism of Broadway were doing a little evening entertainment together and staging two one-act plays. This was Constancy by Neath Voice and Suppressed Desires by Susan Glassbill and George Cram Cook. And they performed these together at the home of Hutchins Hapgood and Neath Boyce. And the evening was such a success that they had an additional performance that they wanted to do together. And so Mary Heaton Vorse donated the use of her fish house on Lewis Worth, where they made this makeshift stage. And then those two one acts that they had done that night Mm -hmm. were restaged in August. And then they also did a second bill of two new plays that they presented in September. And it was just this creative collective that they were excited to show together and to have this like theatrical experiment of like off Broadway for the first time. It continued over the winter of 1915 and 16 and then they planned a second season at Lewis Worth again. And it was just the the whole idea of it Cook described as to give American playwrights a chance to work out their ideas of freedom. Mm, I love that. And the second season introduced Eugene O'Neill and his play Bound East for Cardiff as well as Trifles by Susan Glassbill. It feels almost like the original community theater, but then actually I literally being yeah. creators and not just doing like Sound of Music every year over and over, yeah. which no hate to Sound <laughs> well, of like Music, writing that's their my favorite. Own plays. Yes. I know, like we love the Sound of Music, but yeah, if a community got together and wrote their own plays, cast all of the people and then like did all of the stage directions and everything, which would be interesting. That would be fun. And it would probably have some really bad ones too, which would honestly be even more fun. But there's the freedom of it is that you mm-hmm. can and put on your bad plays without being like oh no I'm gonna be a commercial flop and ruin my career you're so right there's no threat it's Mm -hmm. just for your little community whoever wants to go down to the fish house and watch your play yeah that sounds lovely (laughs) I know it's kind of 
beautiful. Mm-hmm. So from Massachusetts, they eventually did move their group to New York City. In September 1916, before leaving Massachusetts, the group met, led by Cook and John Reed, who had formerly organized the Provincetown Players. They voted, actually, to produce a season in New York City. And this is, I think, when it became like an official like group group, you know, not just like mm-hmm. a fun thing they were doing together. Jig Cook was elected president of the newly constituted organization, and they were founded, quote, to establish a stage where playwrights of sincere, poetic, literary, and dramatic purpose could see their plays in action and superintended their production without submitting to the commercial manager's interpretation of public taste. Love it. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. Just being artists. On September 19th, 1916, Cook rented a theater at 139 McDougal Street in New York City, which the players dubbed the Playwrights Theater. And then they developed a pattern of producing a bill of three new one-act plays every two weeks over a 21-week season, which is That sounds like a lot. Yeah, that's what I'm like. That is incredible. (laughs) Like, I know one-acts aren't very long. But Um, still, three new ones every two weeks for half a year? That's a lot. That's crazy. Do we need to explain what a one act is? Do we? If you guys don't know what a one act is, it's just, you know how most plays have an intermission and then you come back and you have... This one doesn't. They wrap it up a little bit quicker. Yeah. Which, honestly... I love Kind of okay with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm here for that. The first New York season in 1916 through 17, they presented nine bills between November and March. So, you know nine three separate so i guess whatever nine times three 27 does that mean yeah i think so 27 one act plays which is crazy we are not math majors but yeah yeah i'm like (laughs) what's basic third grade math i don't know (laughs) whatever but that included three new o'neill plays which included a revival of bound east for cardiff other plays were by neith boys susan glassbill floyd dell Rita Wellman and Harry Kemp. And then a significant addition to the players was director Nina Moyes, who was a trained actor and young director who began helping the players with their staging and interpretation of plays in 1917. Keep in mind that a lot of these names I'm saying, yeah, are woman names, which is really Mm -hmm. cool. In 1917 and 18 season, Edna St. Vincent Millay and her sister Norma joined the players as actors. And the season featured three new plays by O'Neill, three by Glasspell, and the first full-length play, which was called The Athenian Woman, written by George Cram Cook. The players were founded, of course, as an amateur group and originally did not allow critics to even attend their plays to reviews because they wanted to protect its experimental nature. But during the first season in New York, some of the members actually began saying that they wanted they they wanted critics to come they because they wanted eventually like professional actors to be mm. in their shows. So they finally voted to allow critics to buy tickets and come to their performances, even though I guess a lot of the founding members considered this pretty much like meaning that they were giving in to commercial theater and so therefore like going against everything that they stood for. So I think because of this, in part, I'm sure, at the end of the third New York season, Cook and Glassbell, the founders, actually decided to step away from the players for a year-long sabbatical. During this sabbatical, the theater's day-to-day management was overseen by business manager Mary Eleanor Fitzgerald, also known as Fitzy, which I think is cute. It's a cute nickname. <laughs> yes. And someone named James Light. In the 1919 through 20 season, the season of youth included three plays by Joanna Barnes, two by Eugene O'Neill, Aria DeCapo by Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Three Travelers Watch a Sunrise by Wallace Stevens. Eugene O'Neill's The Emperor Jones. Apparently, Eugene O'Neill is like a big fancy playwright. Sorry if someone who like knows a lot about plays is like, <gasps> like, sorry, I don't know who that is. But anyways, his play, The Emperor Jones, opened the 1920 through 21 season, and it was actually like an overnight hit. The cast was led by Charles Gilpin, who was the first African-American professional actor to perform with a primarily white company in the United States. So amazing. And, you know, obviously it's a progressive theater company. But Alexander Wolcott in The New York Times said that The Emperor Jones was an extraordinarily striking and dramatic study of panic fear. O'Neill's play reinforces the impression that for strength and originality, he has no rival among American writers for the stage, which is cool. Wow. And then after this attention, along with a Broadway transfer of the play, 
Oh, so <laughs> they, they, it's kind of like the thing where, you know, as musicians, sometimes like we like, oh, we want to do art for art's sake. But like when it really comes down to it, I'll sell out. I'll write a cheesy pop song and get a million dollars from it. Like that's at the end of the day, that's like what really I want, you know? Mm-hmm. Like sure, I want to express myself in my songwriting. No, 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 no. I want to make a million dollars with a silly pop song. Like that's what I want. Honestly, I think, yeah, that perfectly ties into how everyone's like Taylor Swift, our capitalism queen. You know that we're like, we appreciate her art and her lyrics, but at the end of the day, we know she's in it for the dollar. Yeah, you know? like, like <laughs> and as much as artists as we can say that we're doing it for the art's sake, and granted, I believe a lot of the times we are, it just feels really good when it succeeds. And at yeah. deep down, we all do want our art to succeed even if we say that we don't want to fall for all the commercial garbage. And you know what? The commercialness of art, it is garbage. I hate it. But when my art does well, oh, does it do great things for my ego, which is probably a bad (laughs) thing. So maybe we should be fighting that. And I think that's part of the reason why art survives so long is because it's so ingrained and like a commercial success and everything. You know, like there's kind of a beauty in the, commercialism and capitalism of it all even though at times it sucks and it means that you sell out (laughs) yeah honestly though my biggest goal in life is to be a sellout let's be honest you know what I'm fine with that because a lot of sellouts are winning awards and making a lot of money and I think that that's fine (laughs) and if you sell out you can make all your money from the thing you sold out for then you don't have to go back to work and you just do the goofy art stuff that you want to do for the rest of your life you can retire and do whatever you want yeah you can make weird music for the rest of your life anyways tangent moving on (laughs) so i guess ironically then the commercial success eroded the collective spirit of the provincetown players and basically i mean it went against the reason why it had all been formed so as a result of the growing pressure to succeed in commercial terms with no new playwrights coming to them to be developed so i guess it's like they lost what was special about them so people didn't want to go and experiment with them because all of a sudden now there was like the expectation to be great again which is obviously now here the very negative side of commercialized art cook and glassbell asked to incorporate the provincetown players actually to protect the name but they left in 1922 to travel to greece after o'neill fired cook as the director of his play the hairy ape which is an intriguing title because they felt he was using the players as a tryout for its Broadway run (laughs) as opposed to, you know, the whole purpose behind it. Uh. So the 1921 to 22 season finished without the public knowing that Cook and Glassbell had left. And then the players announced a suspension of their next season. Cook wrote his subscribers promising a new season beginning in October of 1923, but him and Susan Glassbell stayed in Greece and the original Provincetown Players did not produce again. In 1923, the primary members of the Provincetown Players Corporation voted to formally disband. Jig Cook had already written to the company before he left in 1922 that they had given the theater that they had loved a good death. So. So sad. There is the founding and the original disbanding of the Provincetown Players in New York City. Who would have thought the success of one of its plays would have been its downfall? But it went against everything they stood for. So I really, though, I think we're on to something here with community theater starting up again and having people write plays for it. I would love that, to be honest. As long as we don't end up with parodies of Hamilton by some Christian church like that TikTok. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in all actuality, if community theaters were putting on their own shows and writing their own shows, I feel like 99% of them would just be parodies of already yeah, famous Broadway shows. Right. So They'd have to ugh. like make a rule. Only original content. Like, no parodies, please. <laughs> yeah. We've had enough. Oh, man. All right, well, now let's talk about the women of the Provincetown yes, Players. There are so many important women. One thing I wanted to talk about really quick before we dive into them, there is a term you're going to hear a million times because practically all these women were a part of it. It was a group called Heterodoxy. Mm. It was founded in 1912. I'd never heard of it until this, which is honestly interesting to me because it sounds very cool. So it was founded by Marie Jenny Howell, and the only requirement for membership was that the applicant be unorthodox in his or her opinion. Oh. Yeah. Their motto was literally the only taboo is taboo. And so they just wanted people from like as many diverse political views and like everything, like social issues, political views, everything, all centered around the idea of rights of women. 
So, you know, we talked about in our history of Western feminism how a lot of the times it wasn't super inclusive for women who had different beliefs that were like of a different sexual orientation or of a different race or, you know, like a different political affiliation, you know, like it wasn't extremely inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's what heterodoxy was supposed to be. Like it was a huge group for bisexual and lesbian women, but they also had a lot of heterosexual members. They actually started with like a little luncheon club. And so they would just meet every two weeks on Saturdays. And it was like 25 women who would get Mm. together and like just eat lunch together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they didn't have like a ton of differentiation on race. I think it was kind of a geographical thing, but they did actually have people of other races, which was monumental for the time. But they ended up disestablishing in the 1940s. I'm sure you can find out a ton more about them, but practically every single woman we'll talk about was a part of this group at some point. Interesting. Um, I'm like trying to think of like, what opinion do I have that could get me into the heterodoxies, you know? (laughs) Yeah, be like, what is controversial? But I feel like at this point, it would be like, women deserve rights. Like, oh, (laughs) you know, like it's not taboo. I feel like most of the things I believe are, you know, in line with general human rights. So yeah, I don't know if it's considered taboo. Yeah. Okay. So first off, we have to talk about Susan Keating Glassbell. Yes. We mentioned her name so many times now. She was born on July 1st, 1876, and she was an American playwright, novelist, journalist, and an actress. She actually was first known for her short stories. She had 50 published short stories, but she also wrote nine novels, 15 plays, and a biography. Wow. Yes. Lots of writing coming out of this woman. An incredible amount of writing. (laughs) Seriously. They also were often set in the Midwest where she grew up. And it's believed that a lot of them were semi-autobiographical, which I feel like is pretty typical, Mm -hmm. whether or not people realize it, which would explore commentary on social issues like gender, ethics, dissent, and also just had a lot of deep, sympathetic characters who made principal stands, and that's what she became famous for. You mentioned a little bit earlier that her 1930 play Allison's House earned her a Pulitzer Prize for drama, mm-hmm. which is incredible. And she also was a best-selling author in her own time. However, most of her books went out of print after her death. Yeah. Because... Because that's what always Society. happens to women <laughs> artists, it feels. Oh, literally. Yeah. We can keep Shakespeare in print for over 100 years, but we can't keep a best-selling author who won the Pulitzer Prize in print for five years after her death. <laughs> that is the thing with these women artists that we cover is how many of them are famous in their lifetimes. And like you said, Pulitzer Prize winner, the founding of like a big influential group of playwrights in New York City – best-selling novel five years after she's dead these are out of print yeah. it's just ridiculous what? yeah i hate it it's so dumb but yeah so late 20th century a lot of her contributions have been coming back to light because of a renewed interest in women's contributions to society who would have thought we're progressing everybody <laughs> slowly but surely uh, yeah so now today she's recognized as pioneering feminist writer and one of america's most important modern female playwrights especially her one-act play trifles from 1916 it's cited as one of the greatest works of american theater i always think it's funny when people say this about women that we cover but they're like michael billington who's one of britain's leading theater Theater critics called her American drama's best kept secret. Mm-hmm. Like, well, let's stop keeping secrets. We don't need we? to gatekeep this anymore. <laughs> yeah. We talked a lot about how she founded it with her husband. So they actually met when they were a part of the Davenport group, which is another like little artsy group that founded together. And so that was her husband, George Cram Cook. He was teaching English literature at the University of Iowa, and he was a wealthy man and a gentleman farmer and he actually was already in his second marriage at the time but they fell in love and so he divorced his wife and got married to Susan Glassbowl. We don't condone cheating on your spouse but (laughs) that's what happened. And then despite like how successful her earlier fiction had been a lot of her plays that she submitted to the company would be what she's best known for. Trifles that play that they consider to be one of the best Greatest Works of American Theater. What's cool about it, it was actually based on a murder trial that she covered as a young reporter in Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, cool. So it was like an instant success. Like 
audience immediately loved it. It's one of the most anthologized works in American theater history. So really cool. It kind of makes me want to read it. Yeah, it I was like, going to say we should read it this week. Yeah, or it should be like a, a play. I mean, not a, it is a play, like a TV show or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So much material here for any... Any Netflix producer listening out there? <laughs> yeah. We've got your back. <laughs> so many ideas. <laughs> then she also wrote The Inheritors which was like play about three generations of a pioneer family, which sounds really cool. Actually, they call it America's first modern historical drama. And it kind of makes me think of like succession or something like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like Yellowstone, like three generations of a pioneer family and like the drama that ensues. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I'm ready to read that as well. Sounds great. (laughs) And then she also finished another play called The Verge, which is an early expressionist art piece. One of the things that was really common in the early days of the Provincetown Players is that they would have members of the group be a part of the cast. And so even though she wasn't trained, she actually was an actress in the plays. Mm. And one of the early members of the group said that she had only to be on the stage and the play and the audience came alive. Oh, that's so sweet. A legendary French theater director and critic, Jack Coupeau, said that he was moved to tears by her performance and described her as a truly great actress. Mm. So she did a lot, obviously. As you mentioned as well, they moved to Greece shortly after the Provincetown players kind of started disbanding a little bit. And sadly there, her husband, Cook, caught a disease from his dog and ended up passing away. So Susan Glassbell ended up returning a few years later to Cape Cod alone, where she wrote a biography and tribute to her husband, The Road to the Temple, in 1927, and then had a couple of affairs, you know, one with a younger writer, then she wrote three best-selling novels. So she, like, lived her old days as an old bachelorette. (laughs) Yep. As she And that's also when she wrote Allison's House. It was, like, a very prominent time in her career, honestly, like, best-selling novels, Allison's House Pulitzer Prize award-winning, you know. Hot guys. Yeah. Yeah. And then her relationship with Norman A. Matson, the younger man, ended after eight years. And then she kind of fell into her first and only period of low productivity. Gosh, no one will ever say that about me. Yeah. <laughs> her only period of depression. <laughs> yeah. oh. But during that time, she struggled with depression, alcoholism, and poor health, which is really tragic. But she wasn't done. In 1936, she moved to Chicago and was appointed the Midwest Bureau Director of the Federal Theater Project during the Great Depression. Oh, wow. Which that sounds like a project. And that went on for like, I think a year or so. Mm-hmm. And then she ended up returning to Cape Cod after that was finished. And she died on July 28th, 1948 of viral pneumonia. Wow. But long, successful, beautiful career full of best-selling novels, plays, Amazing. What a life. And we could just sit here and talk for three hours and give a whole detailed thing of everyone. We'll come back to it. But amazing life. This next person is Neith Boyce. And she was an American novelist, journalist, and theater artist. And much of her earlier work was published with help actually from her parents, Mary and Henry Harrison Boyce, which Boyce, excuse me, which I think is really cool. Neith Boyce later co-founded the Provincetown Players alongside Susan Glassbell and George Cram Cook, her husband Hutchins Hapgood, and others. (laughs) Hapgood. Hutchins Hapgood. That is a name. I love that name. (laughs) Anyways, but she worked with the Provincetown players in several capacities that included directing, performing, hosting productions in her home, and having all four of her plays produced. All four of her works for the stage were first presented by the Provincetown players, Constancy in 1914, Enemies in 1916, Two Sons in 1916 as well, and then Winter's Night in 1928. So she was Definitely in one of the later seasons of the Provincetown Players. Major themes that are consistent in her work include cases that argue for young men and young women to experience periods of sexual or relationship experimentation to avoid making serious mistakes later on, which was scandalous (laughs) for the 1910s. So controversial. (laughs) Yeah. The power of social conventions, whether for good or for evil, the negative effects on women's character from having to cope with life independently, and just the general difficulty of women's lives. A little bit about her personal life is that she met her husband Hutchins Hapgood while working for the 
commercial advertiser. Hapgood himself had a long career as a novelist and a journalist. They married originally in June 22nd of 1899, and they had two children together. Hapgood and Boyce had what was outwardly claimed to be a modern marriage, in which both partners were equal and neither were bound by sexual fidelity. However, behind closed doors, she was solely responsible for the children while he enjoyed numerous affairs. So... This made me so irritated yeah. because it's like, okay, we are a modern couple, modern marriage, and then it's like behind the doors. The patriarchy has still got a grip. Yeah. And I'm like, I honestly can fully say with confidence that this is happening in Hollywood and multiple couples, mm-hmm. guaranteed. Like all the people that are like, oh, we're progressive, we're equal, like guaranteed that there's still some crap happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's just annoying because it's like, oh, they're performative. They're, you know, like, ugh. Yeah obnoxious i agree his jealousy (laughs) prevented boys from enjoying her own sexual freedom that he enjoyed for himself which (laughs) anyways i'm gonna do what i want but but i'm too upset about that for you to do what you want so Mm. i don't share but you have to yes i guess the one thing though was that he did support her writing and boys's ability to use her writing as a means to voice her own discontent and frustration so you know what? There's that for him, I guess. But she actually ended up <laughs> dying in Provincetown, Massachusetts. So stayed yeah. very, very close to that area for the rest of her life. I think it's Joanna Barnes. Is that I, her name? I think so. And Joanna this Barnes. is somebody that I'm actually going to be covering in yes. June. So yeah, there was, we're reading about her life. I was just like, okay, there's literally no way I'm not doing a full episode on this person. Yeah. Her so, life is insane. Yeah. So yeah, we won't go as in depth with her, but basically just say she was an American artist, illustrator, journalist, and writer mm-hmm. who is best known for her novel Nightwood in 1936, which is a cult classic of lesbian fiction and an important work of modernist literature. She lived in Greenwich, really appreciated, you know, the atmosphere of sexual and intellectual freedom there. And I guess another cool thing is, so she also like had a career as a freelance journalist and an illustrator for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. I thought this was cool. Upon arriving at the Daily Eagle, she declared, I can draw and write and you'd be fooled not to hire me. And then later, she of course went to the Greenwich Village and then that's where she published her prose, poems, illustration, and one-act plays in both avant-garde literary journals and popular magazines. And she published an illustrated volume of poetry called The Book of Repulsive Women. Which I would love to own. I know. So <laughs> anyways, hard not to say more, but I know. We'll come just back end in June. Saying, she ended up spending a lot of time abroad in England, Paris, and North Africa. That's where she published and wrote Nightwood. And then after spending two decades in Europe, she returned back to New York, wrote her last play, Antiphon. I think so. And then passed away in Greenwich Village in June of 1980. The next one is Edna St. Vincent Millay, another name we mentioned multiple times. She was an American lyrical poet and a playwright. She also was a renowned social figure and a noted feminist in New York City during the Roaring Twenties and beyond. Most of her work was actually under the pseudonym Nancy Boyd. Do we know why she wrote I don't know. under a pseudonym? Yeah. Especially because it was like a female pseudonym as well. Yeah, it's not like it was like Sir... I don't know. So that's super interesting. But she actually grew up in a super poor family in Maine. And her mother was a single mother for most of her life. She divorced her father after too many incidents of domestic abuse and financial problems. Like he just wasn't managing money well. But one thing that her mother really instilled in her and her two sisters was a love for like classic literature. Despite the fact that they had to move around a lot from like place to place because of like poverty and everything else that was happening, their mother would like haul this huge trunk full of Shakespeare and Milton books with Aww. them everywhere they they went and really just used that to educate their daughters, even though they had no formal education. She did win poetry prizes from a very early age and even started a school's literary magazine called The Maganta Cook in high school when she finally was able to attend. So nothing before high school, but then she went to school for a while then. She also won the St. Nicholas Gold Badge for poetry. And by 15, she had published her poetry in the popular children's magazine, St. Nicholas, the Camden Herald, and high-profile anthology current literature. This was a really funny story. She entered a poetry contest at age 20, and one of the judges picked her poem and like wrote her a letter telling her she was the winner. Hmm. But he didn't clear it with the other judges. Oh, and no. apparently her poem didn't like fit some weird criteria that they had set. 
And so she had been notified that she was the winner, but then like they didn't officially pick her as the winner. And so she got like fourth place officially. But then it was this like huge controversy that ended up everywhere because like one of the judges had picked her and notified her. So like the second place winner offered her his prize money because he like felt bad about the whole thing. Uh I couldn't find out if she actually took it. But the judge who picked her even refused to attend the award ceremony because he said that hers was better. And that's why he picked her as the winner. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. She ended up attending Vassar College later on, but hated it due to its very strict rules. She grew up in a very free environment and... She despised the propriety that Vassar had for their students. The faculty actually all unanimously decided to expel her her senior year, (gasps) but a petition from her peers allowed her to graduate. (laughs) Justice is served. (laughs) Bless the classmates. She actually also went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for poetry for her poem, Ballad of the Harp Weaver. And she was the first woman and second person ever to win this award. Amazing. And also was the sixth person and the second woman to be awarded the Frost Medal for the Lifetime Contribution of American Poetry, named after... Robert Frost. Frost. Uh She also was highly regarded during much of her lifetime with the prominent literary critic Edmund Wilson calling her one of the only poets writing in English in our time who have attained to anything like the stature of great literary figures. Wow. So for a while, she actually, I'm trying to remember the whole thing. I don't know. She got ill for a really long time, ended up marrying this guy, Eugene Jan Bozvine, and he was a war correspondent, and she had met him, and he was a self-proclaimed feminist, so he really supported her career and actually took primary care of all of the domestic responsibilities Hmm. and kind of let her do her thing. They also had a very open marriage. So both of them had other lovers throughout their 26 year marriage. One of hers was a poet, George Dillon, who was actually 14 years her junior that she met at one of her readings at the University of Chicago. By the 1930s, however, a lot of her critical reputation was in a decline. Modernist critics were really mad about her traditional poetic forms. I don't know. I don't understand people getting mad at people doing things (laughs) traditionally. Yeah especially when it comes to writing. But, oh, well, with the rise of feminist literary criticism in the 1960s, it revived an interest in her work, as most of these women saw. But she actually died at her home on October 19th, 1950, at age 58. But she's buried alongside her husband at Steepletop, Austerlitz, New York. Amazing. This next person is Louise Bryant, and she was an American feminist, political activist, and a journalist who was actually known for her like sympathetic coverage of Russia during the Russian Revolution of November of 1917, which I thought was interesting. She actually grew up in rural Nevada and attended the University of Nevada in Reno and the University of Oregon in Eugene. She graduated with a degree in history in 1909. After graduating college, she pursued a career in journalism and she became a society editor for The Spectator and freelanced for the Oregonian, yes, Oregonian newspapers in Portland, Oregon. During her years in that city from 1909 to 1915, she actually became really active in the women's suffrage movement and she left her first husband in 1915 to follow fellow journalist John Reed, who she actually married in 1916, to Greenwich Village and hence the Provincetown Players. And at that time, she formed friendships with leading feminists of the day, some of them that she actually met through Reed's Association at publications such as The Masses, at meetings of a woman's group, heterodoxy, and Mm -hmm. through the Provincetown Players. During a National Women's Party suffrage rally in Washington, D.C., she was actually arrested and spent three days in jail crazy but then so suffering in her later years from the rare and painful disorder adiposis dolorosa she did little writing or publishing in her last decade but she actually ended up dying in paris in 1936 and was buried in versailles and then in 1998 a group from portland actually restored her grave which had become neglected so i think that's super yeah cool. this was cool i actually saw like a little footnote on this they like her grave was going to be like expedited i don't know entirely what that means but like they were gonna dig it up out of versailles and like kick it out and because of like that group in portland they raised enough money to go and restore it and bring it back to its like Mm -hmm. glory and actually put like a proper marker there and then pay enough to keep 
the grave there. Interesting. So basically, they had to prove that she was important enough that they could keep her buried in Versailles. Mm-hmm. So kind of crazy. I don't know what they do with people. They I don't know either. But yeah. hey, <laughs> very dark. Okay, the next one is Mary Heaton Vorst. She was an American journalist and novelist. And actually, a large part of her reputation was her journalism about the labor protests of the largely female and immigrant workforce in the textile industry on the East Coast. Oh, cool. Yeah, which I'm sure would actually be a really cool episode. Yeah, absolutely. Labor protests of the textile industry. She was born on October 11th, 1874. And her father, so this is one of the only ones I read about where like her parents were actually like really rich. Mm. So that was interesting. Her father was a hotelier. And then her mother was the widow of Captain Charles Bernard Marvin, who was like this shipping magnet and liquor merchant. Mm -hmm. So they had money. Yeah. Lots of money. Sounds like it. They lived in Amherst, which is the college town in Western Massachusetts. And she traveled extensively throughout her entire childhood. They actually like wintered every year in California and Europe, which come on, is there anything more rich than being told that you're wintering somewhere? No, absolutely not. (laughs) And she actually attended kindergarten in Hanover and then her first year of grade school in Dresden. While her father encouraged an interest in history, her mother was sufficiently unconventional to induce a disdain for the restrictions of a lady's fashion. So her mother was a huge, huge advocate for the women's dress reform movement, which we actually will be talking about later this year. And she loved to indulge her daughter's study of art, first in Paris and then later at the Art Students League in New York City. Mary herself said that she didn't have the skills to become an artist, but she always appreciated it. She actually was married multiple times. She had two husbands that both died really early, leaving her with some kids. And then she traveled to Greenwich Village by herself and became a charter member of heterodoxy. And then by the end of 1910, she was the district chair of the New York City Women's Suffrage Party. She also was a huge advocate for like the peaceful, like what did they call it? The Women's Peace Party. They really, really protested the war that broke out in Mm. Europe. And so they actually sent her back across the Atlantic as a part of a delegate for an international congress of women at The Hague. Mm -hmm. And that led to the creation of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she actually talked about how while she was in Europe, she saw soldiers like laughing and drinking on trains. And that would taking them to places to go and fight where they would kill and be killed. And in her diary, she wrote, there is that which makes man his own enemy and every woman's man takes passionate joy in risking his own life while he takes the life of others. When women's understanding of this becomes conscious, it is called feminism. Ooh, interesting. I know. Very interesting. So a lot of her fiction that she wrote later in life talked about a lot of this, like material profiling of social and domestic struggles of working women. And I love this. It says, unwilling to be a disinterested observer. She participated in labor and civil protests. Mm -hmm. And she was the one who donated the fish house for them to have all plays in. Four years before her death, she actually, at age 88, entered the Silver Jubilee Banquet of the United Auto Workers and was led by the union leader. And so that She was feted for her work as one of the most important labor journalists of the 1920s and 1930s, like really leading that labor movement. Cool. She died of a heart attack on June 14th, 1966 at her home in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and was buried there. She was 92 years old at the time of her death. Something that's kind of interesting, actually, is she wrote a memoir in 1935 But she also participated in this like oral history project at Columbia University in 1957. And so they like filmed and transcribed an interview with her. Oh, But it's missing. (gasps) No. And so they think that it was because of her. Like she found a record of like an affair that she had with Robert Minor and then like the absence from her children. And so she just like got rid of it. She didn't want that to be on record. Yeah. Also, there was a ton of information on her. Like, highly recommend if you're interested in her, go read it because I couldn't 
even read everything that there was on her. But there was a lot of also like suspicion of like communist sympathies and everything oh. that she was really worried about. We've talked about that a ton mm-hmm. with a lot of like early actors like red baiting where they would claim that they had allegiance to the communist party and then like blacklist them. So they think that maybe that could be another reason why she possibly got rid of, got rid of them. Wow. Yeah. But in her autobiography, she described herself simply as a woman who in early life got angry because many children lived miserably and died needlessly. Yeah, very true. And she sounds incredible. Like, she really honestly sounds amazing. Well, that's what I love. All of these women's stories, which that's not even all the women that were even closely or slightly tied to the Provincetown players, but they did all live such incredible lives. And obviously, one of the main reasons why I love doing this podcast is because we always just get to find more amazing stories and we only get to scratch the surface but i just it's so cool people are so cool and so inspiring and these women are that agreed i also wanted to mention really quickly that rita wellman was like mentioned but i couldn't find any like concrete information on her i think it might be in the books i mentioned at the beginning so that's another name that you can look into but there was really limited information on her Mm -hmm. you can read the plays that she wrote but yes. I couldn't find any information on her life. And just to end, going back to that Where Are the Women playwrights, a recent study that was conducted by the Dramatist Guild of America indicated that productions of plays by women are again on the rise, mm. increasing 8.5% from 20.3% to 28.8% since the previous survey. So that's a major step towards gender equality with women stepping into wider range of roles in the theater And they're hoping that the positive trend will continue. One that she brought up was actually Waitress because the music was done by Sarah Bareilles and the screenplay. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. The screenplay was written by a woman and it did very well. It had a lot of commercial success and ran for nearly three years on Broadway. So they're hoping that with like up and coming plays being produced and put on Broadway, women stepping into directorial leadership roles professors researching and uncovering earlier works by women and adding them to reading lists that eventually we can have like that greater Mm -hmm. gender equality and parody in theater so here's hoping right (laughs) here's to the future everybody (laughs) yes and if you're looking for a play to produce on broadway written by a historical woman we just gave you a list so many (laughs) and (laughs) we know they're good they got like big deal prizes back in their day like that's gotta mean something carry some weight someone's just gotta dust them off and bring them back Mm -hmm. well Thank you again to the person who suggested that we cover this topic because, yeah, we really haven't talked a lot about theater arts really at all, honestly. So we talked about Afro Bay a long time ago. Oh, we We do, do. absolutely. It's, yeah, it's just one of those things like, yeah, we didn't learn about it in school. Like, I was in art history, you were in music history. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot more conventional, like, visual and musical people that we cover a lot of the times, but. This was amazing. Like, I definitely want to learn more about all these women and read a lot about their works. And Me too. Thank you for being here and for listening. If you're new here, leave us a rating and review or go check out our other episodes before you do so to decide what you really want to rate us. Yes. And follow us on Instagram, which is More Than Amuse podcast, where we provide visuals. You can see all these women's beautiful faces and learn even more than what we could provide here in our episode today. So go check us out. And that's the easiest place to reach us as well for Mm -hmm. any discussion topics, anything you want to have us cover, anything you think is cool. That's the easiest place to reach us. So we'll see you over there and we'll be back next week with another episode.